This evening we continue our book of Revelation together, and we are in chapter 3 as we are currently looking at each of the seven churches individually here on Wednesday evening. The title of our series is Revelation, the Next Dimension, and the title of our message this evening is the sixth of seven, the Church of Philadelphia. Let's begin in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but a little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is to come on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Have you ever been faced with an opportunity that for one reason or another you decided to pass up? And after passing it up later in life, you look back on that moment that that opportunity presented itself to you and you wish you would have taken it. You wish you would have gone for it. I don't know, maybe you had an opportunity to buy into an up-and-coming company Years ago in the late 1980s, I was approached as a young man by a coworker of mine asking me if I was interested in taking some of my savings and buying into this new store that was coming to Chicago. And he believed it was going to be quite profitable and they were going to do exceptionally well. When I asked him the name of the store, he said to me a name that I had never heard of, Walmart. Unfortunately, I passed the deal up. For one reason or another, I wasn't meant to participate in that opportunity. Maybe you've gone on a vacation and you've gone someplace that you know you'll probably only visit once. And while you are there, you have an opportunity to do something. Maybe something extraordinary, out of the ordinary, or go to see an excursion that's a little extra money and yet you decide not to, and then later when you get home looking through the pictures of that vacation, you're kicking yourself. Oh, I wish I would have gone there. I wish I would have just spent a little more and done that, you know. Or, or maybe you've purchased something like a new car and you're excited about it. But when you were offered certain options on that car, you, you passed them up. Uh, I don't know if I really need a windshield. Um, you know, it's that much more. Forget it. You know, I, I'm just going to save that money and I'm going to move on. Uh, and then you ended up regretting it. And then, you know, you have that car for the next 
five, ten years, or however long it may be, and you just regret not taking advantage of that opportunity. Maybe you've had an opportunity to share Christ with a friend and you didn't take it for one reason or another. Maybe you had an opportunity to show the love of Jesus Christ, but you didn't take it for one reason or another. Or maybe you were prompted at an off moment, a moment that you didn't suspect you would be prompted to maybe start a conversation with a stranger and you didn't take advantage of that opportunity. The Church of Philadelphia is known uh, undoubtedly as the faithful church of the seven churches of Revelation. This faithful church was positioned before an opportunity. That opportunity is specified in these words, I have opened a door before you. We don't know what the opportunity was, but God is making it clear that an opportunity was afforded to them. He is also stating in this particular statement that the doors that he opens cannot be shut and the doors that he shuts cannot be opened. And it is also referring to their entrance into the kingdom of God being assured in the person of Jesus Christ. I believe both are in play here. The faithful church of Philadelphia is posed before and uh, positioned, I should say, before an opportunity and they are assured of their salvation in Jesus Christ as they are going through, which appears to be somewhat difficult times that they are experiencing. Philadelphia is an interesting city. Uh, Like the cities that we have looked at, they were all known for different characteristics and different um, novelties about each and every city. The, The city of Philadelphia was a city that was in the Asia Minor region, but it was on the outskirts of a particular region, and it was known to be the gateway into the world beyond meaning what existed beyond the gates of Philadelphia, meaning the next step you took, you were now proceeding on beyond this Asia Minor region into maybe uncharted, unknown, uh, unexplored areas. In Philadelphia, they had an archway. And as people passed through that archway, they were reminded of the idea of they were entering into uh, new opportunities, new ventures, new regions, etc. It's a lot like our city of St. Louis today. Today, we know St. Louis to be the gateway to the West, correct? They have a beautiful arch there that reminds us that you are crossing the Mississippi River, leaving the east half of the United States, venturing into the West, And when these trips were first taken by settlers moving across the Mississippi into the western regions of the United States of America, it was uncharted territory. But they persisted forward, they persisted west because of possible opportunities that could lie before them. The 
you know, desire uh, for gold brought on the gold rush, etc. And people ventured west or people wanting to get a bit of land for themselves and make something of themselves would venture west. They would just pack up everything and venture west. The city of Philadelphia was like that. It was a departure area. It was a, a place that people would gather before they went on and left that particular region. But it was also a city like Sardis that was on the decline. For the city of Philadelphia had been a beautiful city all the way up until 17 B.C. In 17 B.C. they discovered that the property of Philadelphia was over a geological fault line. And there was a horrendous earthquake that took place that destroyed vast amounts of of the buildings there in Philadelphia and scattered the people. When an earthquake hit in that particular time in that particular region, people would automatically scatter from the city. Can anybody think of why they would want to leave the cities during an earthquake? It's because all the buildings were simply stones stacked upon each other and when they started shaking, they were going to come down. It was unsafe to remain there. So most of the people lived outside of the city, kind of in suburbs, and they ventured in, but the city itself was, again, uh, a remnant of what it once was. And amongst these people were faithful Christians. They were having their difficulties, for in the city of Philadelphia was a synagogue of Jewish individuals who apparently were the instrument of persecution towards these Christians. Once again, we're introduced to the synagogue of Satan in our text, used again a second time, the first time in the area of Smyrna. Now we find it in the area area of Philadelphia. And we don't know if these are Jewish people displaced from Jerusalem, actual Jews, or Gentiles who had become Jewish. Now seeing these new Christians... And these Christians claiming that by faith they are now residents and citizens of the kingdom of God. And now these Gentile Jews are persecuting them for it. I wonder why they would do that. You mean to tell me I didn't have to get circumcised after all of that? You know, what? I could have entered in solely by faith through Christ. What are you kidding? Do you know how much it hurt? I still talk like this, you know. We don't know, but it was, this persecution was leveled against these Christians. But they were faithful. They had little power, and we don't know if that's uh, referring to the number of Christians that were there, or if it's referring to the uh, influence they had within the city. We know that they were equipped with the Holy Spirit, having the same uh, spiritual ability that any other Christian would have, but they were small in size and stature and probably uh, just a handful of them there. But they kept his word and they didn't deny him. And they were praised for it by God. There's no accusation to be found anywhere in our text that would indicate that they had done anything wrong. But there's a lot that we can learn from this small church. There's a lot that we can glean from in these few verses. They were posed with an opportunity, but they were fearful. 
And there's encouragement that Jesus gives them or indicates within the words in which he uses to address them. Showing himself as the final authority over all things, the very first portion of our letter to the church in Philadelphia is the address of Jesus authenticating the words in which he is saying to them. For Jesus calls himself the Holy One here in verse 7 and the True One. These are unique terms that are used specifically in reference to his personal deity, showing that he is God. The Holy One meaning that there is none like him, none at all. He is ultimately unique, set apart from everything else. There is no one like him. He is the Holy One. As one wrote, he said Jesus Christ presented himself to the church at Philadelphia as he is the Holy One. This, trans, um, this, this is a tantamounted uh, to declaring that he is God, which of course he is. Jesus Christ is holy in his character, his words, his actions, his purposes, and the Holy One, he is uniquely set apart from everything else, and nothing can be compared to him. So he's also the truthful one, the one true one, as he states here. Meaning that he is genuine. He is original. He is not a copy. He was not manufactured. He is authentic. He is God. These same two terms are used by those praising the Father in Revelation 6.10 as they cry out with a loud voice saying, O Sovereign Lord, how long and, and how true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. But he also declares to be the one who holds and has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one will open. This is a direct quote from Isaiah 22.22. In Isaiah 22.22, we have the depiction of a king that was, uh, he despised the people, he uh, led the people harshly and incorrectly, and God replaced him with Elikim, a new king, but even Elikim was going to be replaced. The phraseology that is used here, it means for one whose decisions can be uh, never be overturned by anyone who is any less than king. And since he is the holy one, the true one, there is no one above him. So all that Christ does, all that Christ decides, all that Christ makes possible, no one can overturn. That's what he is saying here. He is giving them this assurance to allow them this confidence so that they may go forward, that they may have the courage that they need. Why? Because of what he indicates they are experiencing as we read further. He says, I know your works, verse 8. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The phrase 
this open door before you can be interpreted one of two ways using scriptural examples of a defining of this phrase. Number one, the most common phrase is the phrases that Paul uses. In 1 Corinthians 16, 8, 9, we find that, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has open, been opened to me and there are many our adversaries. Or in 2 Corinthians 2.12, when I come to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even through a door was opened for me in the Lord. So we have the examples of this phrase being used in the manner of an opportunity for evangelism. That's why many equate Philadelphia as an evangelistic church, a church that is sending out missionaries into the world. But I think we have to first and foremost keep that phrase in context with what we just learned in the address in verse 7. For he says here, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, I know your works and I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. What is he referring to? Again, Isaiah 22.22 signifies the authority over David's house and means the Messiah's undisputed authority over the entrance into or the exclusion from the kingdom of God. This open door is not only reminiscent of an opportunity before them, but it's also the assurance that they have access into the kingdom of God through the person of Jesus Christ. And I believe that why it has that dual nature is because that not only was the city of Philadelphia positioned in such a way that the archway would remind people of the opportunities that possibly could be presented in the unknown regions that followed and and, and could be pursued, but also in the fact that they were being persecuted. And undoubtedly the Jews at that time in the synagogue of Satan were holding their salvation over their heads. How is it possible that you can come to Christ or be a member of the kingdom of God apart from Judaism? And we find that duality, I believe, in the words that Jesus uses to encourage these people. And as a result, because they have such little power, and, and, and yet they were still able to keep his word and they have not denied his name. He then lists a series of promises made to them. Whenever we read a passage like this, again, as we talked about last week when we were looking at the church in Sardis, we must be careful not to bring presupposition into the text, but look at the words that are there. And then doing a little bit of research, trying to discover as much about the area and the territory and the history and everything that is behind it to try to fully understand what is happening here. If we solely look at uh, Philadelphia as a church that had the open door of missions before them, I think we miss a lot of what Jesus is trying to say further within the address. I also think that before we contextualize any phraseology, we must first look at the context in which the verse is placed. So if we had verse 8, which we just looked at, we have to look at verse 7 to maybe get some insight into verse 8. So they have this open door of opportunity. 
They are a faithful, small group of people. Little power, little influence, little in number and statute. Probably didn't even make it on the radar of the most mainstream thinking there in Philadelphia, but yet they were still able to be persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result, he makes a series of promises to them. And the first one is found in verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Again, one of the promises that the Jewish people held on to tightly was their apparent superiority over Gentiles. Uh, in Isaiah verse 60, I'm sorry, chapter 60, verse 14, listen to this promise that God makes to his people. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. There is no doubt that Jesus Christ, in the authority that he carries, that he stated in verse 7, that he is now showing them in verse 8, promising them in verse 9, he is saying that that promise I now give to you, you simple Christians who are being persecuted by those who would call themselves Jews, who are not, they lie, and they will learn that I have loved you. I will hold those accountable. I will make sure that they understand the promise that had been given to his people for their enduring of suffering from the hands of their enemy there in the book of Isaiah. Christ is now applying to these young believers here in Philadelphia. And that's the first of several promises that he makes. When does that actually take place? Some believe that it takes place at the famous judgment or the separation of the goat and the sheep. And it's an event that we find in the Gospels that is articulated, that I believe happens before the entrance of the millennial kingdom. Will that be the occurrence where this will finally be fulfilled? Will it be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom itself? We don't know for sure. But Christ makes that promise and they will learn that I have loved you even though they think that they are serving my Father as Jews but they are not Jews at all. They don't understand what they're doing. They don't get it. Because you can't come to the Father but through me. Christ, the only way to the Father. Then he makes him a second promise in verse 10. But you have kept my word about patient endurance. You've persevered. You've been steadfast. You've kept on keeping on. You've moved forward. That's what he's saying. And as a result, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This is a promise of eschatology that these individuals who are faithful, who have little power, which also will resemble a complete dependence on God, one who realizes 
that there is no ability in and of themselves, only has one choice, and that is to rely on God for the ability to live the Christian life. Secondly, they did not deny his word. I mean, they kept his word, I should say, and they didn't deny his name. Even though that they were so small in numbers, they, they were faithful to God. And he says now that in this time, this hour, and that's what the word means. It means a period of time designated for the world, for those who are on the world. It is a time of judgment that he is referring to. And I believe that he is referring to here what we know as the tribulation period. A seven-year period of time that will precede the return of Jesus Christ. A seven-year period of time that is articulated for us between chapter 6 and chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, where the details of that seven years is given to us. Here he says that during that time that I deal with the world... That's what he is saying here. He says the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those. This is, uh, this is in, uh, pointing it or directing it towards those who dwell on the earth. The Bible tells us that it's going to get very difficult. So what does it mean that he will keep them from the trial or the hour? This verse uh, is a favorite of those who love to discuss and to talk about eschatology, the study of the last days. And there are three different opinions. Number one is an opinion that, uh, an interpretation that isn't very prevalent any longer today, but it is solely determined that this was some kind of trial that solely came upon those in Philadelphia, the Philadelphians, We don't know which trial he is referring to, and he kept them from that trial. There's a lot of ambiguity to it. But I think that that's too generalized. I I think that I understand why they would say that because of the indications through the other churches of being specific events that deal solely with them and Jesus coming to judge them accordingly. But this one seems to be transcendent. This one seems to look forward even farther. The second position and the third position all have to do with one's idea of when the rapture of the church is going to take place. And there are two prominent thoughts, though there are five positions concerning rapture uh, theology, but there are two prominent thoughts that are popular today. That the church will be removed before the seven-year tribulation period. That is a position I hold to. But there are others that hold to that it'll take place right before the coming of the Lord and the church will have to go through the tribulation period, be taken and then return with the Lord at that moment in one event. And as a what I would call a quote-unquote Rosetta Stone, they look to John 17, 15 to help them identify two words that are found here. The word kept and the word um, from. The word kept is the Greek word treo, which means to safely preserve, protect, to watch over, and to keep an eye upon. Or they have the word from, which is the Greek word ek, which means out of, apart from. So those who hold to a post-trib rapture 
says that God will keep them, preserve them through the tribulation period, saving Christians during that time to be then taken at the end of the tribulation period, somehow watching over them, somehow uh, protecting them from the wrath of God that is being poured upon the earth. And then they go back to John 17, 15, where Jesus says, I do not ask, this is the famous prayer that he prays there in the Garden of Gethsemane before the, night of, uh, before his, the day before his crucifixion. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them, and here's these two words, keep them from the evil one. So, though they would focus on the word keep, and then they might even use an Old Testament example, such as Noah was put into the ark, and went through the judgment of God, right? And then was released and was spared the consequences of the wrath of God. The pre-tribulationists would say, no, we look at the word ek, out of. Keep us from these things, apart from these things. And they go back to John seventeen fifteen, and then they look at the word from, the evil one, And therefore, we are not going to be subjected to the authority of the Antichrist as he reigns for those seven years. We also know that Thessalonians tells us that something has to be removed that is currently restraining the rise of the Antichrist, which I believe is the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, therefore, keeping the church from the wrath that is to come during the seven-year tribulation period, and then we return with Christ in Revelation 19. And then for an Old Testament example, since they used Noah, we would use Lot. And Lot was spared and taken from Sodom and Gomorrah before Sodom and Gomorrah was judged. These are two orthodox positions of the rapture. We should discuss them, we should look at them, we should We should try to reason through Scripture concerning each of these positions. Either way, we have this promise. If God takes us out before and removes us to allow us to be spared completely from the harm that is to come. Now, there is no promise that the days leading up to the tribulation period won't be horrific in and of themselves. It is not complete escapism to think that. We are just being spared from the wrath of God. If we are then preserved through the tribulation period somehow, some way, which is God is perfectly capable of doing, and then rapturing the church up at the end, and then coming down again immediately to establish the millennial kingdom, he can do so also. Now, as we look at this, this is not a verse that I think we can be dogmatic on either way. I think we can use it We can talk about it. We can look at it and what it is being promised here. But understand that this is the conversation that people have. And if we want to talk intelligently on these things, then we should do so from passages of Scripture that really articulate our points well and not something that we have to try to make fit either way. And so here we have this promise, right? That we are going to be kept from this hour of trial that is coming upon the people of the world, the people of the earth. Both camps seem to be very much in agreement that this is the terrible time before the return of the Lord that is being referred to here. 
And so I'm grateful that God will spare us from the wrath that is to come for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is a reality. It is something that we should consider and be very, very thankful for. In verse 11, then he goes on, I am coming soon. And this is again has caused great, great discussion. The word soon there can not only refer to a period of time, but it can mean subtly. I'm sorry, suddenly, not subtly, suddenly, quickly, at a time that is not known. So he asks them to hold fast to what you have. What do they have? Well, if you look at their works once again, you will discover that in their limited little power that they have, I believe that has caused a great dependence on God that should never, ever be lost. I am more concerned when a Christian tries to live the Christian life in and of themselves rather than one who knows that they're very limited in their own personal ability and then rely completely on God to do the work in and through them. I need the Holy Spirit to allow me to live above my old nature. I need the Holy Spirit to help me to live above the natural cravings and desires of my flesh. I need the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work that God has put before me. It is not my articulation or my intelligence that's going to change your life. It is the teaching of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit working in you through the teaching of the Word of God that is going to change your life. It is not one who is dependent on God that I get concerned about. It is one who's independent from God that finds themselves struggling and is often the most discouraged in their Christian walk. That's the first thing he holds, asks them to hold fast to. The second thing that he holds, asks them to hold fast to is the fact that they have kept his word. They, by keeping the, his word, they were obedient to it. They, when they learned something that God desired of them, they did it. They governed their life by the authority of Scripture. But they also walked by faith upon the promises that were contained in the Word of God. When we walk by faith and not by sight as believers in Jesus Christ, it is not a blind faith. It is a faith placed in the promises of God that God makes towards us as believers in Jesus Christ. Think of the promises of God as stepping stones and each step you take in life, you place your foot upon it and it is like placing it on the rock, Christ himself. And allowing that to support you in your time of difficulty, in your time of need, in your time of distress, in your time of trouble. And thirdly, they have not denied his name. They have kept the name of Christ. They allowed him to be God and would only worship him. But there's a fourth aspect. Hold fast also means I want to remind us of the opportunities presented before them. They were a faithful church. They were dependent on God. They kept his word. They didn't deny his name. 
and opportunities presented themselves before them. We as Christians have to understand that God will provide opportunities for us. And let us take advantage of those opportunities. Let us proceed to uh, advance into those opportunities by faith, trusting God to work things out accordingly. Trusting Him to see things through. Allowing Him to move us as individuals. I think opportunities often present themselves and either we are, we're not sensitive to those opportunities or we're not looking for those opportunities or we dismiss those opportunities that God's given us. Whatever those opportunities might be. I think that God is stirring in us in our church to move forward. I think that he not only wants us to become learned, mature Christians, but he wants us to live our Christianity out each and every day of our lives. He wants us to be living theologians. He wants us to be living epistles that people can read our lives and see Christ within them. Being his hands, being his feet, separating ourselves from our uh, centrifugal Uh, the centrifugal force that keeps us in our own worlds, moving apart from those comfort zones, looking for those opportunities. And God said, hold fast to these things. And he assures them in a very unique way. A A way that would have greatly encouraged one who lived in an area of such instability, volatility, If you were a resident of California, you grew up with earthquakes, didn't you? You just never knew when they were going to come. The doorway became your best friend. Here, all we have to worry about is F5 tornadoes. If you're on the coast, it's hurricanes, you know, whatever it may be. But notice what he says here. In this open door, the assurance that they have, en- they have the entrance into the kingdom of God, regardless of what these Jews say, they are residents of the kingdom of God through the person of Jesus Christ. You are assured of that, and you need to be assured of that before you're going to proceed into any opportunity. Know that. You need to be certain of your salvation and your confidence in your salvation before you move forward into the opportunities that God may present before you. And listen how he reassures them with the promise of what he is going to do for them and what he has in store for them as they enter into the millennial kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that is going to come about in chapters 20, 21, and 22 of the book of Revelation. Look at with this with me in verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown That means take it by force or you giving it away. It can have a dual meaning here. Giving away the reward that is laid up for you. How? By not keeping his word, denying Christ, and relying on yourself. The one who conquers or overcomes. Notice what he says here. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new 
name. Pillars were used for foundational purposes in the building of buildings at that time. That's why they were so prevalent. They weren't just mere decorations. They were foundational because they couldn't dig deep enough at that time to put a proper underground foundation, so they had to use pillars around the building in a certain way to hold up the structure of the building. He says, you are going to be a foundation in the temple of God that's going to be in the New Jerusalem, which we know is not a temple at all, but a gathering of all of the people of God for all eternity. And on, I'm going to write my name of my God on you, and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven from my God, out of heaven. When one was to be honored in a city of realm, their name was inscribed on a bronze plate on the pillars of that city to show that that person was foundational to the city's existence. That's what he's referring to here. This is what waits for you. This is what I'm going to guarantee you for all eternity, that you are going to be foundational. You're going to be pivotal. You're going to be a big part of it. That's what he is saying. He's giving them real assurances. Notice what he says here, and I think this is very interesting. He says here in verse 12, never shall he go out of it. Nothing is going to shake the city that's going to require you to disperse like you were accustomed to in Philadelphia. When the earthquakes came, the after tremors came, the aftershocks came, you dispersed because you were afraid for your life. Nothing is going to do that to you in the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Nothing is going to shake it. You'll never, ever have to be dispersed by fear again. That's what he's saying here. Fascinating. I think it is important that all of us realize what is coming next for all of us. Listen to these words, if I may. It's incredible to hear. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light. It is a lamp, and it is the Lamb of God. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does not what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the promise of this eternity in Revelation 21, 22 through 27. I like what one wrote. He said this, In a very real sense, the church today is like the Philadelphian church. For God has set before us many doors of opportunity. If he opens the doors, we must work. If he shuts the doors, we must wait. Above all, we must be faithful to him and see the opportunities, not the obstacles. So a faithful church positioned in an opportune way to take advantage of opportunities, to move past their own fragility and their own fear and their instability and the volatility of the region and the area in which they lived. They were faithful to God even under pressures of persecution by those who called themselves Jews. As a church this evening, I want to speak to all of you tonight concerning opportunities. 
I want us to be a church that is willing to look for the opportunities that God has presented and that God has made known to us and take advantage of them. First, remember that an insurmountable opportunity turns our attention away from ourselves and back onto God. When we have an opportunity before us and we don't think we're capable of doing it, it forces us no longer to look upon ourselves but to look back to our God. It ignites that spirit of, uh, of vision and it transcends our circumstances and strengthens the imagination beyond our limitations. God doing great things through ordinary people in extraordinary ways. I want us to look for opportunities that God may put before us. And when we face those opportunities, if we feel limited in our ability to accomplish that opportunity, let it drive us back to God that He may do it for us. Secondly, don't forget that insurmountable opportunities force us to trust completely in the Lord our God. It requires us wholeheartedly to force us to trust God in every way possible. I don't know about you, but some of the greatest experiences in my personal Christian life is when I saw God do things that were so vastly beyond my personal ability that only He could take credit for them. You'll never forget Him. You'll never forget Him. And lastly, so as you look beyond your own current limitations and the doors that God has closed in your life, what other opportunities could you be overlooking? So often we look for certain opportunities and when they do not present itself, we miss the opportunities that have presented themselves to us. We're fixated on certain things that we want rather than looking for what God would want and the opportunities that He brings about. Know that you're assured of your salvation in Jesus Christ. Know that He will keep you and you shall be a pillar for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and the temple there within. Trust God for your salvation and therefore look for the opportunities that God may bring in front of you and walk by faith through them. As those Philadelphian individuals, you know, looked each and every day at that ark, thinking that beyond that could possibly be a realm of opportunities for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think of each and every day that way. Go out looking, go out expecting, pray that God would lead those opportunities your way and then trust Him. Let those opportunities push you so far into Him that you lose yourself and it comes all about Him. And don't be looking for things that you want, but be aware of the things that He wants for you.